And I'll read all of chapter 5, reading from the English Standard Version. It is actually reported that there is a that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church when whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would speak and that we would hear you clearly. We believe this is your word. So give us ears that can hear you and a mind that can understand and a heart that is open to receive your truth. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. Lord, let your words remain. May they change us. I pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. This passage of Scripture is a little shocking when you first read it. Some might say it's even a little juicy. You know, it certainly gets everybody's attention when you read about a a sin such as this. Uh, It's something that you might expect, you know, when in the grocery line to see on the little tabloid newspaper about a, a, a person, maybe some celebrity or something, sleeping with their stepmom, church decides to deliver such man over to Satan. You know, and it's just, it has that, that quality to it. Um, if ever our church here has problems, I'll, I'll probably always go to 1 Corinthians 5 and, and, and think, well, at least, you know, we're not struggling with things like this. Um, And I would be mistaken if I did that, actually, because we do struggle with things like this. It might not be this type of sexual immorality, but it might be the willingness to look the other way when people we know are falling into sin. And I'm sure as a church we're going to struggle with this. Um, This sin is outrageous enough just on its own, but what is more remarkable here, or just as remarkable, is that the Corinthians are boasting about this. They are boasting. They're proud. 
Now, the very first thing that you, you have to address is what exactly are they being proud about? Is it the fact that they're proud of this sin? Um, you know, maybe they're just, I mean, really, really excited. This person's sinning this way. And I don't sense that. The Corinthian church hasn't gone that bad yet. And actually, Paul's responding to a report. So there, there's some people who are saying, Paul, you've got to look into this. We need you to say something about this. And so there's people in the church who are looking down on this. That's not what I think they're, they're boasting about. They might possibly be proud that there is someone of such status in their church that they could get away with pretty much anything. They could do whatever you want and nobody's going to say anything to them. And we see this in churches. Maybe, uh, maybe a church has a famous athlete in it. You know, an athlete who is known for his uh, sexual prowess out there. Nobody's going to go to that person and say, hey, I, I know what you're, you've been doing and it's wrong and we need to talk about this. No, that person's an untouchable. And so at one point you, you know that what they're doing is wrong, but at the same time you're proud to have someone of such high status go into your church. Or maybe it could be the CEO of a really big company and that you know he's having an affair, but you know, you're really not going to say anything and you're actually kind of excited the world's looking at you thinking wow so and so goes to your church that might be what's going on or paul might be picking up on just the theme or the discussion that he's had for the previous five chapters that these are an arrogant people and what he's saying is you think you're so spiritually you know mature that you have spiritually arrived that you are full of wisdom, that you're this great church. But look what you allow to go on. It might be that. and it's, That's kind of where I lean. I think here that Paul's picking up his discussion, and these are people who are pointing to their gifts, saying we're somebody. Look at all of our spiritual gifts. Look at all of our wisdom. Look at our fantastic speakers. We have arrived as a church. And Paul says, you've arrived? You've arrived? You should be mourning if you allow this to go on in your church. Not boasting. Not boasting. And Paul says, although you are reluctant to judge this person, I have already made judgment. Now this passage is actually easier to understand if you do not live in America. Um, it's easier to understand if, if you uh, live in the East or if you're in the third world, because for an educated Western Christian, we have a lot of obstacles that we need to acknowledge when trying to understand this passage. Um, for starters, Western societies have a very hard time saying anything is wrong anymore. We, you know, we're moral relativist. What's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. Who am I to judge? And this is pre- prevalent in the, the West. The important thing is tolerance, and that's our boast, that we're a very tolerant society. But even more prevalent in the churches than moral relativism is something I would call moral individualism. Moral individualism. And this is when you do believe there's a right and wrong. You know that there is such a thing as sin. But... If it's another person, it's none of your business. As long as you keep yourself pure, your relationship with God right, that's all that matters. You don't get involved in other people's affairs. 
And so even though you might not agree with what somebody is doing, you're not going to get involved. And the way this might flush out, let's say you're a blockbuster video, you're getting a video there, and you see somebody from this church getting a video that nobody should be getting. They're, they're, they're in the, uh, the adult section. I don't know if Blockbuster has one. Maybe some other video store. They're in the adult section. And you see them pick up the video and checking out. And you look at it and you say, that's wrong. Now, are you going to go up there and say something? Are you going to be morally individualistic? Well, that is wrong, but it's really none of my business. And you just actually try not to be seen because you don't want the person to feel uncomfortable. You know, you hide. I don't want the, for the person to feel ashamed. We're morally individualistic. And so we have a hard time understanding how Paul can be kind of angry at a community for allowing this one sinner here. And a lot of it's because we live in an America in which we hold up individual rights above all else. You would not find any historian or any moral philosopher who would argue against this statement that we live in the most individualistic society that has ever existed. Ever. We are radically self-centered, and it has creeped into the way we relate to God. And as long as we're okay, that's all that matters. But Paul says something that the rest of the world accepts a little bit easier, and that is other people's sins taints you, that you are somehow included in the guilt if that sin happened within your community. And there's a lot of biblical examples that we can give. You can look at number 16, the sin of Korah, in which it was just Korah who sinned, yet God judged his entire family, women, children, everybody, servants. In Joshua 7, you have the sin of Achan, in which the the people of Israelites there Um, laying siege to Jericho. And the Lord said, now don't take any of the silver or gold for yourself. Achan did. Secretly. He took it and he hid. And the Lord judged all of the community. You had, it was something like 20-something people died. Because of one person's sin. He held the community responsible. As a community of believers... If we have people in our congregation who are living in a blatant, unrepentant sin and we do nothing, we are responsible. We share that burden. When someone sins and we say nothing, what we're doing is we're allowing the culture of the world to come into our midst instead of us going out and setting and changing the culture of the world. We're letting Corinth in. We're letting America in. It's really no wonder that you don't see church discipline today when you live in a society where there's moral relativism, when there is moral individualism, there is not going to be any church discipline. It doesn't have any legs to stand on. And yet Paul sees here that it is church discipline, not tolerance, that is the sign of a healthy church. That is the sign. Or a sign of a healthy church is if it is exercising discipline. Now, there's some people who would object to this and think, well, discipline, that's really arrogant, you know, to say, you know, from your high horse, what you're doing is wrong. And Paul says, actually, no, it's one of the most humble things you can do. 
The arrogance is if you do nothing and you set your law above God's. That's the arrogance. Humility is acting in faith and going forth and confronting the sin. That's true humility. Don't hide behind the banner of tolerance or humility and say, that's the reason I'm not going to confront my brother. David Pryor, he's a biblical scholar who's uh, pastor churches in England and South Africa. Um, he says this about the Corinthians in this text. He says the Corinthians were not simply being lax about Christian standards of behavior. They were actually arrogant about their tolerance and about their broad-mindedness. From the perspective of third-world Christians, the church in the West today is equally guilty, not just of moral laxity, but of smugness. There is a culpable blindness about the seriousness of certain sins, coupled with a perverse refusal to recognize the close link between sinful compromising and the ineffectiveness with the gospel. This leads to a continued spirit of patronization towards Christians overseas. Visiting Christians from Africa, Latin America, Asia, they are deeply hurt and shocked by our apparent lack of concern. And Paul would be shocked as well at the things that we let go in the name of humility when it's really our arrogance. Paul says that we must not allow these unrepentant sinners to stay in our midst, that we have to kick them out. Everybody here shares in the guilt. Verse 6 compares this to letting a little bit of leaven into a lump of dough. You let in a little bit and the whole thing is leavened. It's the same argument that he picked up in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you is plural. It should be, y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Y'all are. That means collectively the Spirit of God is in our midst. We all are the building. Therefore, if one person has unrepentant sin, we're all sharing in this. And the Spirit of God, His work is hindered because of one. That's what being in a community of faith does. We like to focus on being individual temples, which is good. But collectively we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And let's look at how we're supposed to practice church discipline. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Delivering one from Satan or to Satan is the same thing as uh, removing the leaven from your midst. It's get rid of this person, set them outside of your fellowship. It's excommunication. Now, please remember, we're not kicking somebody out because you, you sin. If I find out, you know, you, you had a lustful thought or you were angry at somebody, I'm not going to say out of the church. Otherwise, we, we're all gone. And there's going to be nobody here. We all have sin. This is continued, unrepentant, uncaring about it, sin. No willingness to change. That person needs to be removed. And Paul uses this strong language of to deliver this person to Satan. And when he says that, that tells us something profound about the nature of the church. Something very profound. And what he is saying is, within this community, within this community, there is power to resist Satan. Within this community, you are safe from harm. 
within this community of a church, you are protected. And when we remove you, we have handed you over to Satan. And there is no longer protection. That says something astounding about the nature of the church and what true fellowship among believers provides. The fellowship of believers keeps you safe from the enemy. Safe from all of his schemes. This is huge. This means you cannot grow as a Christian. You cannot keep away from temptation or falling in temptation unless you are part of a community of faith. Last week we looked at, I believe in the church and the Apostles' Creed. I do believe in the church. It protects us from the evil one. And by using this language of removing leaven from your midst, Paul is actually bringing to mind uh, the Passover in Exodus. If you remember, during the Passover, they had to remove all the leaven um, before that, that holy night. And what he is saying is the church is like that holy night, being in the house that is covered by blood. And when the destroyer comes, he will pass over that house. But if you were to be taken outside of the house, there is no protection. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you pray. If you were taken out, the destroyer will get you. No protection. Safety within the walls. Safety within the fellowship. Destroyed by the devil outside of it. Think of the church as a fallout shelter. You're safe within Outside, there is no protection. Paul compares the church to this. Being part of the church is for your protection. Well, what does excommunication look like? It doesn't mean that you kick the person out, literally. You know, we have bouncers at the door and we throw them out. Um, they used to do that some. Um, Charles Wesley or John Wesley's wife used to heckle him as he preached, and he would have her removed. Um, and just, I mean, he'd say, Her, get her out right now. Um, I wouldn't do that to you. Well, maybe some of you. It depends what, what you said. Um, when you don't physically kick them out, you actually hope they would still come to hear truth. You hope an excommunicated person still comes to your church worship service to hear truth. Verse 11 says you're not to associate, you're not to even eat with this person, but this does not mean to cut off all communication. 2 Thessalonians 3 says that we still counsel these people. We don't treat them as an enemy. We still give them words of encouragement, encouraging them to repent. We don't cut off all ties there. We do deny them what we we would call table fellowship, um, which is a lot different Hebrew society than it is now. Um, it was a very intimate, very relational thing to have someone over for a meal. Um, and that's where the Lord's Supper was taken, was in meals in people's homes. And certainly we would deny the Lord's Supper to someone who has been excommunicated. But the real spe- specifics are not laid out here, but there does need to be some type of separation some type of distinction between that person and the rest of the church. Now, this is what I want us to hear. Let me ask you a question. I've been chewing on this question all week. What would excommunication look like in your life? 
What would it look like in your life? What would being handed over to Satan resemble for you? What could this church here deny you and you would feel it? And think hard about this. Could the church deny you all of the small group prayer times that you have been attending? Um, All of the fellowship gatherings that you have worked so diligently to, to pull together to get to know and to love one another? Could the church deny you of that? Could they deny you the chance maybe to serve in children's ministry? What is it that the church could deny you in which you would feel excommunicated? Many Christians, many Christians, particularly in the Western church, actually have already voluntarily excommunicated themselves from the church. And they don't even know it. They've already done it by their own will. They've been handed over to Satan and they're unaware. I mean, many people feel so powerless against temptation, against the schemes of the devil, and so they wonder why they don't have any joy in their life. And the reason is they voluntarily have excommunicated themselves from true Christian fellowship. They're not continually devoting themselves to fellowship. Many Christians, all they do is attend church on Sunday, and then apart from Sunday, they're an island. All, that, all that's necessary is my personal Bible study, my personal prayer, my personal quiet time. And then they wonder why their lives are falling apart. They wonder why they're still struggling with sin. They wonder why they don't have any joy. And it's because they have voluntarily excommunicated themselves. Remember, even an excommunicated person can be allowed to come on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening and hear the gospel, hear the Bible being taught What is it that we as a church could deny you in which you would feel it? Church is so much more than a Sunday service. So much more. It's praying together. It's sharing meals with one another. With continual sacrificial devotion. It's being known Letting your guard down and letting people know you and letting people love you. Just coming on a Sunday service offers you no protection from the evil one. And this is really hard for us to understand in such an individualistic culture. We can't really understand what it is to be denied Christian fellowship because so few of us have actually experienced Christian fellowship. Um, You know, the reality is, more of us in this room probably know what Britney Spears was wearing this week than if a person worshiping next to us has had an affair or is in a sexually immoral relationship. We worship among strangers. What is it you could possibly be denied 
that would make you feel like you've been excommunicated, that you haven't already denied yourself now. So this passage isn't so much about us finding out the sinners and kicking them out. It's about holding up a mirror to ourselves and asking us, are we really committed to the body? Are we really committed to the fellowship of believers? Why have I for so long denied myself the protection of the church? And Paul would argue that when we deny ourselves this, we don't deny just protection, we deny ourselves joy. He says that we are, uh, in verse 8, real quick, he says, let us therefore celebrate this festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he sees this as a celebration, like the celebration of unleavened bread, but now our entire lives are this celebration. And we were radically committed to one another and to each other's purity, each other's holiness. There is a tremendous joy and celebration that comes with that. Celebration that can only come through Christian community. This is one of the reasons that we are doing community groups in which we do have sign-ups out there. Um, It's a way of us getting in homes and smaller units and so we can be known and so we can be loved and so we can invest in one another. The community groups is how we're, where we're going to draw volunteers to serve in our children's ministry. Um, the community groups are really going to be the heartbeat of who we are as a church. Something I would love for every person to be committed to. So community is more than just the middle name, Redeemer Community Church. It's actually a reflection of who we are. And pray with me. Lord, we do believe in your church. At the same time, I feel like I say we believe, help our unbelief. Because if we truly believed in her, we would commit ourselves to her. We would commit ourselves to one another. Truly getting to know one another, serve one another, confess to one another. I pray that you make that a reality here. I pray that church would begin once we leave these walls. And that you would build us up all week. For your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.